Hey everyone, Gil Gross here, and it is time for a live mailbag where I answer your observations, your questions, your concerns, your inquiries, and ultimately your comments on tennis or whatever else from wherever you may be joining. I appreciate you guys for doing so. Of course, the replay will will be up on YouTube if you are not watching live and on podcast platforms. About 48 hours ago, I posted in the YouTube community tab where you left your comments. I will be beginning by answering those, and then I will get to uh, the live chat. So if you leave me comments in the live chat, I will probably get to them uh, later on. So save them, keep them in mind, store them. Um, and hello, everyone. As I as I watch the live chat, everything looking good. Uh, the season starts tomorrow. Very exciting. Um, I, uh, I'll i be doing the late shifts for ATP Cup on Tennis Channel. So if you stay up really, really late for me in the, uh, or with me rather, in the U.S., uh, you will uh, hear me hosting. So looking forward to that. I'm going to be watching uh, a lot of the tennis. Let's get to our first comment. It is from Angelos, member Angelos. Um, I have started a membership program, and I'll take extra care to get to uh, member comments. Which five players outside the top 30 do you see having a breakout year? Secondly, what ranking roughly could you see Alexi Popperin ending up by the end of the year 2022 if he stays healthy? Yeah, in terms of Popperin, that's been that's been the uh, the question is if he can stay healthy. A lot of injury issues for a 22-year-old. It does seem like he's been around a while, but he's got a, a really... He's got a lot of potential. I mean, he's a, another dude, serve, forehand, uh, that kind of firepower in both of those shots will will take a player very, very far, as we discussed, as we have discussed with Matteo Berrettini. But all right, let, let's, uh, let me pull up the rankings, and I'll shout out some names, players outside the top 30 who I think can have a big 2022. I go to 35 in the rankings. I see Hugo Umber, a guy who I thought was going to have a big 2021 and he had like more of a moderate up and down at best 2021 compared to my expectations, but he's 23 amazing ability to redirect the ball takes it very, very early has a good lefty slider serve uh, a lot of tools, a lot of craft that I really like. I think he's a, an awesome shot maker and uh, I look for him to potentially have a big year. Like I thought he would last year. Uh, I look at Sebastian Corda, kind of an obvious choice at 41 uh, in the world at the moment. I look at Ilya Avashka, who had a, an awesome season um, in 2021, and I don't think that was a fluke. I think we're going to see Avashka uh, continue to climb up the rankings. Uh, let's see. Let's see who else. Pedro Martinez at 60 in the world, a dude who I think is uh, still really underrated. He's uh, a very good athlete. The reason he's such a late bloomer is he was a, a total mental head case when he was younger, but he's he's matured, and now he's ready to fulfill his potential, and um, I, I like his ground game a lot. I like his kick serve a lot. Uh, he'll be excellent on clay, and uh, I like him to, to rise up the rankings. And I'll throw out two more names. I'm going to throw out Daniel Altmaier, who's another player who struggled with injury, but has a lot of athleticism, a lot of drive, great compete on the court, 
excellent one-handed backhand. And if he can tame that forehand, which gets inconsistent, Altmaier's a really good player. I think will be in the top 50. Uh, and Alex Molchan is uh, the last player who I want to shout out. So there's, uh, there's a couple guys outside the top 30 who I have my eye on. All right, let's get to the next one. It is from Alex. Why is it that most players like to play an aggressive style of tennis, usually lack mental strength? I messed up the English, but I think you got the point. If you look at players such as Tsitsipas, Rublev, Shapovalov, Aliasim, they constantly fail under pressure. Even more established players like Team or Federer have crumbled under pressure numerous amounts of times. Why do you think this is? Also, what do you think about the development of some of the youngsters coming up like Runa, Popperin, Brooksby, and Musetti? Uh, do you see them having a possibility of entering the top 30? First of all, I just want to say it's absolutely incredible that the first two comments of this live chat uh, mention Alexi Popperin. I mean, I did not realize that that he was the talk of the town here, but I, I love it. I love that for him. Um, the first part of the question is a, a, a really good one. And I think it has to do with margin and safety and what happens when tennis players get nervous. Um, executing, and I think it could go both ways because you do have some aggressive players that I would point to that are extremely clutch, extremely good under pressure. Matteo Berrettini was the number one player in the world at breakpoint saved conversion at about 72%, which is 2% percentage points higher than he won his service points. So he actually got better when facing breakpoint, which is very impressive. John Isner, one of the best tie-break players of all time. Roger Federer, I don't know if he's fallen off. I haven't looked at these numbers, but Federer is a good tie-break player as well. Uh, at, with that being said, there have been moments against Djokovic and Nadal where the pressure is certainly taken a bigger chunk out of his game than it has his opponents. And in the case of like an Isner and a Berrettini, I think, or a Pete Sampras, one of the, again, one of the most clutch players of all time who is an aggressive player. Uh, when you have a weapon that you are absolutely supremely confident in to, to no end, and it's a very simple weapon that there's really no decision-making, you're easily able to, uh, deploy it like a big first serve. I think that helps under pressure. John Isner, it doesn't matter what the situation is. He's always going to feel good about his first serve. Same with Berrettini. Same with Pete. Uh, Pete's going to come forward. He's going to serve volley. There's not going to be any any questioning or second guessing. That's just what he's going to do. Berrettini and Isner, they're going to go after their forehands off of that first shot. So when you have a clear game plan, I think that helps under pressure. But I also think it helps to be able to deploy margin and safety. Couple of reasons. First of all, if you're tight um and perhaps you're not really feeling loose enough to hit the higher difficulty shots to uh go down the line, to hit close to the line, to inject pace. When you're tight, all of those things are harder. But if you're looking at a Djokovic or a Nadal, um, especially in their athletic primes, they're going to be able to go cross-court, trade, safety, outlast, be more consistent, uh, be patient. These things are, are things that they're able to execute even when they're tight. And I talked about that a lot when Djokovic was at Wimbledon. 
And I think he was tight against Denis Shapovalov. I think he was tight against Matteo Berrettini. And he was able to win both matches. Why? Because even though he was tight, he wasn't making a lot of errors. And I think with the players you just named, Tsitsipas, Federer, Rublev, Shapovalov, Ali Asim, um, when they're tight, they're going to bleed errors, generally speaking. Some some of those guys more than others, but if we want to put them into one box. And uh, that's why I think they are more likely to succumb to the pressure. So good question. And uh, that's my answer. The youngsters coming up, Runa, I like I like Runa. I think I think he's a good player. Um, a lot of pop off both wings. Excellent forehand. Good athlete. Competes hard. He's good. Uh, Brooksby. I, I've made a video about Brooksby. I'm very high on him. Uh, he reminds me a lot of Andy Murray. He's smart. He's savvy. He makes so few errors. He uh, he applies a lot of pressure even when he's not hitting winners. And I think that's hard to see, but. With the way he changes direction, the way he uses drop shots, the way he hits with depth, which is a huge one with him. I think he applies a lot of pressure that people don't see. And uh, Musetti. Musetti's super talented, a great ball striker, and he needs to figure it out mentally. He had a tough season, a really tough season, but I do think he'll figure it out. And uh, hopefully sooner than later. Um, just checking on the, the chat here. Will Novak play Australian Open? What do my sources say? I don't think anyone has any sources. Um, Dusan Lajevic recently said that uh, he doesn't know. And he's the captain of Team Serbia for the ATP Cup. So uh, there's really no no good info out there, no solid info out there. I know that there's been, you know, Serbian tabloids that have reported certain things, but, uh, and, and I'm not completely familiar with the media landscape there, but my understanding is that they're not very reliable. Um, so, you know, I'm still in a, uh, I'm still in a wait and see personally. I do not know, uh, what is happening with Novak. Um, let me, hit the uh, the next comment quickly. This one's from Flynn. Do you prefer orange or apple juice? Uh, that's an easy one. And by the way, if you ask me food questions, I'm rarely going to be able to resist answering them. Apple juice, I, it's much sweeter to me. I prefer orange juice. Uh, apple juice has a very chemically taste a lot of the time. I prefer apple cider. It tastes less chemically pesticide-y. Uh, and, and orange juice, even if there's the same amount of sugar, the acidity of the orange will cut the sweetness, whereas apple, it's just sweet, too sweet for me. So, orange juice. All right, uh, question from, I'm not going to try to pronounce that, um, but let's see, maybe I will. No, I don't know how to pronounce it, I'm sorry. But question from a, a great member who, I, who I'm who i very appreciative of. Uh, what makes for a great coach-player collaboration, and what are some of the best collaborations right now? In particular, how much of Hubie's success in 2021 can be attributed to Craig Boynton? Craig Boynton, great coach, established coach, awesome career. Uh, Hercotch has moved himself to Tampa, and he, uh, they've had a, a somewhat longstanding relationship at this point. And by all accounts, it's a really good one. Uh, Hubie's progress has been really great. But this is always tough, you know? Um there's not a lot of access. There's it, It's hard to really know 
what these relationships are like and who is doing what and who is saying what. Um, so the only thing you can really try to take from is what players say in the media and how consistent these relationships are. I think generally the best players in the world have long and good relationships with people who they trust. You know, Nadal and Djokovic and Federer, they've all had people in their team for the entirety of their, at this point, extremely long careers. And I think that's something important. That's something to to look for. Sometimes that's family. Sometimes it's not. But uh, what makes a great player-coach relationship in general, it's, it's trust and it's buy-in. I always say it's like a diet. The only diet that works is the diet you can follow. I don't care if the diet is great for you. I don't care if it's going to give you good results if you're not able to follow it. If you're not able to follow the diet, not a good diet. And coaches ask their players of certain things, certain behaviors, certain conducts, certain drills, um, certain game planning. And the only way that works is if the player buys in, says, I, I believe in this. This is what I want to be doing. So one example, I think one of the most interesting examples of a uh, a player-coach relationship where there has been a lot of access and there has been a lot written and a lot said about what has gone on uh, behind the scenes is um, Francis, uh, Francis Tiafo's relationship with uh, Wayne Ferreira. And Wayne Ferreira just trying to improve his focus on the court. Tennis matches are long. They could be two to five hours long. And if you're off in la-la land for 10 minutes, it's a problem. And that's part of the challenge of this sport. Well, Wayne Ferreira looked at Francis and was like, we need to get better at focusing. So here's what we're going to do. When you're doing fitness, no music. No music. Because on the court, you don't have any music. So you need to focus on your fitness and no more listening to music. And when you get a massage, when you're doing recovery, when you're stretching, no cell phone. You know, these are things that Ferreira has put in place. A lot of players would probably say, you know, no, F you, this sucks. Um, so you need the buy-in there. And clearly, uh, Francis, to his credit, has bought in. So, um, you know, the credit goes both ways. All right, question from Nathan Roman. Oh, uh, this is, of course, hitting on... The uh, the all-important uh, Djokovic-Australia question. Are you willing to comment on the situation with Djokovic's vaccine silence slash his status for the Aussie Open being in doubt? Um, it's super unprecedented. I can't recall this happening in our sport, uh, but it does happen sometimes in other sports. Uh, who's the starting quarterback going to be? Teams don't you know disclose stuff on injuries, and you're waiting until kickoff to find out you know who's playing. What's going to happen here? WWE, right, is all about, you know, professional wrestling, all about, like, the cameo and someone showing up unexpectedly. I'm not a fan, so, but I do know that about it. I cannot recall in tennis approaching a, a major championship and, and not knowing if the favorite is going to be there or not. This close to the date. Uh, it's crazy. Uh, I do find some some humor in it, honestly. I, you know, I, I'm not making myself crazy. I'm waiting and seeing, but I am really surprised. I really, 
Uh, I didn't think that Novak would would leave it so long. And, I mean, there's a lot of speculation out there that's just silly and uh, counterproductive. And, um, you know, I, I choose not to take part in it. We'll see what happens here. And uh, I'm going to leave it at that. But I, I do, I, I think what, what I'm most interested to see is how the story breaks. And part of that in me is like the media nerd uh, because I am. I'm like a media nerd a little bit. I like to, I'm interested in how stuff works. And I'm really fascinated to see, is this going to leak? Is this going to be, you know, Novak coming out with a release or a social media post? And is that how we're going to find out? Or is someone else going to scoop it? And I'm just kind of interested to see what happens. But we wait and and we see. You know, the ATP Cup thing is interesting. Um, obviously, Novak entered in the ATP Cup and then pulled out. So what does that mean? I don't know if that means much because Novak played pretty deep in the year um, for Davis Cup. So I think it would be somewhat sensible if he if he wanted the extra time um, to, you know, be in the gym and to work on his body. That's the, the most important thing that players always talk about in the offseason. That's the time to build up your body in the gym because once the season starts, it's pretty hard to, to kind of build muscle and, you know, do some certain things in the gym that are going to maybe not be the best for being on the court the very next day. But if you don't have matches, you're able to do that. So, uh, look, I, I don't know. It, it's all weird. It's really weird, uh, the whole thing, but I'm just going to wait and see, and I'm not going to take part in the guessing game. From Pedro, which players outside of your top 10 prediction do you think uh, have a chance to have a great season, and what are your favorite watches in tennis that are not in your top 10 prediction video? Um, Let's see. Well, I guess I'll give some love maybe to some players ranked inside the top 30 because I hit on the players outside the top 30 uh, in the first comment. So, you know, I, I do think Taylor Fritz is here to stay. He's really figured out how he needs to play, and he has the kind of weapons, the ball striking, the serve, that I think he'll be in the top 20. And then you have, you know, the it's interesting because there are a lot of guys who are kind of in their primes, but it'll be fascinating to see which direction they go. You know, Diego Schwartzman, is 2020 going to be his peak? Is that going to be when he peaked? Or does he have more ahead of him um, in terms of, you know, outdoing himself? Because he was a a top 10 player in in 2020, made the Roland Garros semifinals um, and and played great in Rome, beat Nadal in Rome. Um, is that going to be the peak or not? You have, uh, you have Karatsev at 28 years old. Is he still going up or is what we saw kind of what we saw and now he's going to be a top 30 player, but not a top 15 player. I don't know. Uh, Bautista Agut and Pablo Carreno Busta and Nicolas Basilashvili. These are all guys in that 30-ish age range and... It'll be interesting to see which direction they go because, as I mentioned, the top 10 
all youngsters except Djokovic and Nadal. All 25 or under, youngest top 10 since 2009. So are some of these older dudes going to be able to actually have some upward mobility or are the young guys going to really lock it down? So that's going to be interesting. Favorite players to watch outside the top 10? Um, Look, first of all, just don't kill me for this. It's completely subjective. Um, Just... Dan Evans, fun to watch. Um, Gail Monfils, obviously fun to watch. I mean, I don't think anyone if anyone disagrees with that, I think they're I think uh I think that's a popular one. I'll just put it that way. Uh let's see. Demonor, fun to watch. Umber, fun to watch. Bublik, a little overrated for me as as a as a viewer. Just viewing pleasure. But a lot of people really enjoy him. I love watching Fanini. I love watching Tiafo. Um, I love watching Alejandro Davidovich Fokina. He's a great watch. I like watching Mackie McDonald. So I don't know if you're uh, ascertaining Brooksby. I love. <laughs> so let's see. Like, do I have a type? Do I have a type? I don't know. Maybe I do. Yeah. There's some shouts for you. Next one from Niklas, Niklas von Schantz. How many Grand Slam titles will players born in the 90s end up winning? Right now they have two, Team and Medvedev. For context, players born in the 80s have 74. Players born in the 70s have 42. And players born in the 60s have 33. The mean of any given decade is 40. And right now the 90s have two. Man, uh, I mean, I wanted to include this comment because it's, you know, it's interesting and um, it's pretty cool. And I feel pretty ill-equipped to try to figure that out, like what a, as far as a prediction goes. But hey, like point taken, a whole lot less than any other decade, right? A whole lot less. I think that's clear already uh, because if you think about it... <laughs> A lot of these uh, Grand Slam contenders at the moment, I would say in 2022, and I'm going to use the word contender very loosely here, okay? Uh, you know, Medvedev, Zverev, Tsitsipas, Rublev, Berrettini, Hercoc. Again, I'm, I'm using contender very loosely. Uh, those are all 90s guys, I believe. I believe. Um, they... I mean, they're like 25, um, you know, they don't have that much time. Like half the decade is pretty much half the, half the nineties window is, is almost gone. I mean, it's going to be a lot less. That's all I have to say. So great comment there because, uh, yeah, very, 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 very much less. And that's what, you know, that's the big three effect. I don't think there's any arguing that. Shockwave Zero. From Zverev's generation to Alcaraz, who are the top three in terms of maturity on the court? Or who do you think will mature mentally first? I bring this up because Djokovic and Federer have both mentioned that as a key to them really figuring things out. And Nadal had it right away. Yeah, maturity is important. I think that Yannick Sinner really sticks out in that regard. 
And I think Alcaraz already, and I would maybe like to see a little bit more from him, but I think he sticks out in that regard. Um, and, you know, the generation, the the original, the OG next gen, they're not very mature. Uh, Zverev has had some issues with with maturity. There's no doubt about that. And some of his coaches have cited that as, uh, as issues. Uh, Medvedev. On court, lacks maturity. There's no doubt about that. Tsitsipas definitely lacks some of that maturity. Rublev doesn't have that maturity. So, you know, you do lack that in that crop of players. But I would say Kasper Rude would round out my three. I think Rude, Sinner, and... Uh, oh, and Felix. Felix also stands out as very mature. Um, you know, some some of this you can you can you can get from, like their upbringing uh christian rude was obviously and casper's father uh a a top professional and raised casper in a way that was incredibly measured right rafa learned from his cousin who was who played for fc barcelona and saw this is how a professional athlete acts and that's not a knock on any of the guys who are less mature because this is life, you know, everyone has strengths and and weaknesses. So so I don't really want to knock them either, but are is Sinner wise beyond his years years is Alcaraz wise beyond his years with the way they conduct themselves off court and also uh excuse me, on court, both with on court demeanor and their off court relationships. You know, Juan Carlos Ferrero, established coach, could be anywhere else, takes Carlos under his wing. Um Piatti, one of the best coaches that the game has seen has taken Sinner under his wing. Tony Nadal is is coaching Felix. Tony Nadal does not need to coach anyone. Tony Nadal is absolutely fine. The only way he's going to coach a guy is, is if he thinks that he has a full a full amount of respect, discipline, and maturity coming his way. There's no way Tony Nadal is taking a job with with anyone else. So that's kind of... Those are the guys who, to me, again, from a, a quasi-outside perspective, those are the guys who seem most mature. This is one from Tennis Rules. With the injuries Nadal has had and doctors telling him he should retire from tennis early in his career because of Mueller-Weiss syndrome foot disorder, the disorder also causes much of the issues with back and knees. Do you think Nadal's career achievements are the most impressive of the big three because all of the physical ailments he has had for the past 16 years? I don't think the other two would have overcome these major injuries to become GOAT-worthy. So I always say the same thing here. First of all, showing up to work is is part of it. And staying healthy is, is part of the game. So people ask me, in fact, my... Uh, Gruskin, Alex Gruskin asked me the other day, would you rather have uh, Del Potro's career or Dominic Team's career? And and I said teams uh, because getting injured, getting injured isn't fun. And I almost always, when I'm asked that kind of question, I almost always go with the healthier player. Now, Rafa has done everything he's he can, and he's been dealt a bad, you know, genetic hand with Muller-Weiss syndrome. And he plays a physical brand of tennis, or at least he he did play a very physical brand of tennis. All these things, and what has been utterly admirable about Nadal is that he has come back time and time and time again. 
He's put in, you know, he's been willing to suffer. He's had no quit. He has, he's just been so uh, persistent, unflappable, and determined to, to fight through all of these issues. That is a part of Nadal's legacy. But as a point of comparison, it doesn't boost him up in any way. Um, now, it, again, in terms of like, if we want to be super reductive and again, talk about comparison as a way of, of, of ranking these guys, which is something that I tend not to engage in because I do believe it is reductive. Instead, if you just paint the picture and that's the reason I'm entertaining this comment with, with a response is because, uh, it's part of the picture and all you got to do is paint that picture. And I think that's enough. But I don't think that it should be ever used to, you know, as a weapon to, again, rank these guys, which I know is a tendency often. But, you know, when it comes to something like this, there's really no reason to to do it. Uh, but but it is an admirable part of Rafa Nadal's career. Unbelievably admirable is that he's been able to battle his body. Um. And the last thing I'll leave it at this: when you talk, when you think about players like, um, I don't know, Hyun Chung, when you think about players like Kyrgios or uh, I don't know, Soderling had a had an illness that ended his career, uh, which, which wasn't his fault. You know, generally you don't you don't extrapolate. You know, you don't say like or Chorich. Born a Chorich is a good example. No one's saying like. Well, you know, Chorich is just as good as as uh, Rublev. It's just he's been injured. Injuries are part of it. You know, you can't you can't project or extrapolate and try to imagine what things would be had a player been healthy. Because the reality is, these players, a big part of what they do is just. Um, attempting and often very successfully attempting to take care of their bodies in ways that keep them on the court. You know, I mean, hell, one of my big weaknesses as a player, as an amateur uh, recreational player is staying healthy. And I don't look at it as like, Hey, you know, I'm, I'm really good, but my body just doesn't hold up very well. No, like that's, that's just a bad part of me as a player. Um, and I try to, I try to overcome that, but it's just, part of me that's disadvantaged. And you could say, well, it's not anyone's fault and a lot of it's genetic. Yeah, a lot of it's genetic. So is how tall you are. So is how good your hand eye is. I mean, this is all genetic. This this whole thing's genetic and hard work is part of it. But again, so, so, is, uh, so is genetics. All right, that was a really convoluted rant and I hope you, you stayed with me there. Let me quickly check on the live chat. Thank you, everyone, for joining. So I was surprised as we get ready ready for ATP Cup. Not a lot of uh, comments about it at all. Not a lot of comments. So I'll, I'll, I'll roll with that. I just found that interesting. Um, I will be curious once I get to the live chat. Uh, how much do you guys like this event? Are you looking forward to it? IDC, uh, do you think that Novak cares about any other tournaments other than Grand Slams and Olympics nowadays? 
How many tournaments is he going to play next year? My answer to that one is, I mean, he might care a little bit, but obviously slams are the priorities. Uh, What do you think about the length of the preseason this year? Is this an adequate period of time to rest and prepare if you play both Davis Cup finals at the end of the year and then ATP Cup at the beginning? No, I think it's utterly inadequate, and I have not, I haven't heard any player say that the offseason is long enough. I, I just, I haven't heard that. And uh, I'm conflicted. You know, there's a lot of uh, different kind of factors at play there. It's not as simple as black and white, cut and dry, season is too long. I think it's a more complicated issue than that. But do these players have enough time to to rest and prepare? No, <clears throat> definitely not. Uh, do you think ATP is doing enough when it comes to Zverev's allegations? Um, this is this is one where you know I I do want to wait until they finish their investigation and then and then we'll see uh, what comes of it. Um, you know, the one thing that I thought was weird about what the ATP did is they limited the scope of the investigation. They are only investigating events that occurred um, during, I think it was, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm fuzzy now. This was like five months ago, but, but during one event. And the allegations span from the U.S. Open um, all the way through Shanghai in the end of the year. So the, that's the one thing that I, I will say right now that absolutely puzzled me is they limited the, the scope to a, to a very uh, finite time period. And that was just like a weird eyebrow raiser. And then the second thing is obviously they did not hire. Um, if, if you are very, if any organization is very serious about an investigation, they want to, you know, you hire an, an independent firm. But um, let me let me wait until the findings come out, and I don't think that the ATP should be judged in any way, pro or against, um, in terms of the investigation itself, until the findings are released, and then once the findings are released, we'll see what they consist of, and then we'll make a judgment on how thorough was the investigation, and um, you know, does it seem like there's some sort of closure here? which uh, is is what I want personally as an onlooker. I want closure uh, to the to the situation and I think that would uh, that would be a, a relief to, to everyone. Um, I guess the the other the last thing I'll throw out there is Ben Rothenberg did recently uh, reach out to Alia and Alia told Ben that the ATP hadn't yet reached out to her. And that was three months after they announced that the, they were beginning an investigation. I mean, that's really bizarre to me. Obviously, Alia as the subject or the, the uh, alleged victim should be uh, the principal point of contact for any sort of investigation. But maybe it's just slow. So, again... Let's see. Let's see what they come up with. Mike Knee says, Sometimes we criticize players when they don't perform as good in slams as they do in best of three, but what players do you think play better in best of five than best of three? I think there are two 
examples. There are players whose fitness give them an edge and an advantage in long matches. The uh, the the guy who comes to mind is Martin Fucevic. I've I've often selected him as a dark horse in majors. He has often proven me correct uh, throughout the years. So Fucevic just extremely fit. So loves the loves that marathon. Loves that best of five. There are also guys like Stan Wawrinka, who just likes to play. I think big stadiums, bright lights, high stakes makes him better. Really gets him going. He responds well to it, and uh, that's a player who's masters one thousands titles. Certainly, don't live up to his results in majors. His results in majors are better. Moving on to a comment from Nils. Casper Rude 2022 predictions. One year ago, I asked you whether you thought he could ever win RG, and you answered a clear no. Is the answer still no? I would be surprised, and I mean, maybe, right? I say things all the time. But I wonder if you, did you put some sort of like time stamp on it? Because I couldn't see myself saying no to this if it was like, will he ever um, I could much rather see myself, you know, I could see myself saying no if it was like, can he win in the next two years or 2023? But maybe I did say no. I don't know. Um, whatever I said, I would probably disagree now with many of the things I said because I'm I'm quite high on Kasparu's development, especially on clay. Uh, I did not know that his serve would ever get as good as it got in 2021 or not. Yeah, I just, that has... Uh, that has been a really positive development. I think athletically and in terms of his quickness, he has developed really nicely, better a little bit better than than I expected. Uh, he does just need to improve his confidence. Uh, I think that's that's the main thing. And can he ever win RG? Yeah, I would change my answer. I think he could definitely win Roland Garros. I think he definitely has uh, has the skills to do that. Most of his issues in his game right now are obviously hidden by the clay. He's one of the guys who is a two-hander but still struggles with the backhand defense and the backhand return, something that we see much more often from the one-handers like Tsitsipas or Shapovalov. Uh, Rude has those same issues, only he has a two-hander. I'd uh, I'd be interested, this one from Sarah Gates. I'd be interested in deeper analysis on player matchups. For example, why can Rublev never beat Zverev? Or what type of player do you think each of the big three struggle with most and why, aside from each other? In addition, I'm curious as to the chance that Medvedev might experience a team-esque post-maiden slam slump. What have you seen that tells you this will or won't happen? Love your analysis, by the way. Thank you. All right. Uh, why... Does Rublev not beat Zverev? Well, all you got to do is look at what Rublev does to players, why players find it difficult to play Rublev. And a lot of that has to do with being rushed. Rublev taking the ball very early, hitting it very hard. And players feel like uh, they don't have a lot of time. Well, Zverev has unbelievable pace absorption. He is a counterpuncher. He likes the ball coming in fast and hard. He is not easily rushed. He enjoys defending. 
Um, and so basically what Rublev does just doesn't really bother Zverev. Another thing is Rublev directionally uh, directs most of his attack into the righty backhand corner. His inside-out forehand, his down-the-line forehand, these are his finishing shots, much more so than... Um, much more so than his backhand down the line, for example. Um, so, or if they're not his finishing shots, it's how he directs his offense. So I would say, um, I did do a Monday match analysis where I go into a lot of depth on that topic. It's called the Andre Rublev offense. So you can take a look at that if you're more interested in Rublev, how he beats his, you know, how he beats guys. And uh, why Medvedev, Zverev, and Djokovic, they're all going to be terrible matchups for Rublev. Um, Rublev does much better against guys who he can rush, and especially on the backhand side. So Tsitsipas would be one of those guys you can rush him on the backhand. Um, Berrettini, you can attack his backhand. Players like that, Rublev does much better against. Uh, Medvedev experiencing a team-esque post-maiden slam slump. Everyone is different mentally. Everyone responds and reacts differently. But I think there's a couple of factors at play. I haven't seen that Medvedev is satisfied at all. I haven't seen that that Medvedev um, wants, you know, has any interest in being kind of a one-slam guy. Not to say that team wanted to be that guy or wants to be that guy. Obviously, he doesn't. But the difference between Team and Medvedev is I think Team, for the vast majority of his career, felt that there was a outside chance that he could ever win a major. I mean, he was 27 years old before he really became uh, a top contender, and he cashed in on it. But for Medvedev, it's pretty different because by the time Medvedev was 22, summer of 2019... Suddenly, you know, he's the best player in the world for three months out of the season. And he's 22 years old. So at that point, it's like, okay, I'm a dude. I'm a guy. And I think for team, it's a little bit of a different career path. You're grinding and scraping and clawing and developing and developing and developing through your mid-20s, just trying to get good enough to contend. And it just, it took him a long time to get there. And once he got there, uh, there was there was that kind of, whew, that kind of exhale, that uh, emotion dump. It's just a much shorter road for Medvedev. He didn't go through all that. So there shouldn't be as much of a hangover effect. Uh, but also just everybody's different mentally. All right, a couple more until I get to the chat. From Yiv, why is Sinner considered as a potential top five or more material? It seems for now he has a quite one-dimensional game, and it was noticeable when he played against Alcaraz, who used variety to his advantage. What can he use to his advantage against someone like Djokovic, Medzverev, Nadal team, for instance? Sinner is not famous for trying to adapt or change when a match isn't going his way. Don't want to take mentality into consideration because Sinner hasn't had that kind of pressure yet. 
Most of the times when he plays big names, he is an underdog. And in fact, his one main final in Miami, he lost quite easily. Didn't play well, by the way. Uh, I wonder what I am missing here. Experience can give you a lot, but it's not always about that, as it was shown in his match against Alcaraz when Sinner was the experienced one. Yeah, there is some criticism um, that I've seen coming Sinner his way about being one-dimensional. You know, I would just... I think the one thing to consider is his net game um, has gotten a lot better already, and he's just improving so fast. You know, that's the one thing that sticks out about Sinner is how quickly he's gotten better and uh, what a what a late bloomer he was and what a rapid rise up the rankings he's had. Um, it, it would just be hard to ignore all that stuff. Now... I do see what you're saying about some variety lacking that can cap a player. You know, there can be limits on on how good a player can get if they're lacking those multidimensional tools. But you can also be a top five player, I think, without having this vast toolbox, this massive array. You know, if you have a really good mental, and, and Sinner hasn't proven that he... He has a a bulletproof mental in every area, but in some areas he has. If you have a great mental, if you have just unbelievable ball striking off the ground, if you are a fantastic athlete, if you have an average to above average serve, um, and if you have a backhand like that, which is just special, and you're just gaining advantages in those backhand-to-backhand patterns versus almost everyone, and your forehand is a bazooka. I mean, it's really just the pace and the way the ball comes off of his racket is different. Uh, If you have all those things, you can get pretty good without being someone, again, who has this vast uh, array and this vast toolbox. But uh, is he going to hit a point at the 1% where he could rub against some guys who are giving him extra resistance because they have more options. Yes, that could happen. Then you go back to his age and you just have to give him time. You know, when when things start stagnating, I think then it's okay to maybe levy some of this concern and this criticism his way. But right now, he's getting so much better in a lot of areas so quickly that um, I think you just have to give him a little bit of time. From Kalos, uh, or Kailos, I think it's Kailos, or Kailos. You like referencing if a player has a top five skill set in your reviews. What's your top five serve standing among the top guys, uh, but exclude Isner and Karlovich in modern tennis? Great uh, great channel, thank you. Top five serves off the top of my head. Uh, Berrettini, Medvedev, Zverev, um... I would say I'm going to leave Bublik out, actually. Um, Oh, Opelka. Opelka easily. Easily. And I need one more guy. I will go with... um, I don't know who this fifth guy is. It's kind of tough. Um, cause, cause I don't know. I think after that, I mean, Raonic, <laughs> I'd say Raonic. It, it's probably not a revolutionary answer, right? I think, uh, you know, 
I think a lot of those guys are big guys who who really lean on their serves, but there are a lot of excellent serves out there right now. Oh, Hercotch could be in there. Hercotch could definitely be in there, in there. And then if you separate it, second serve, I think it gets more interesting. Who has the best second serves? Then you throw in Dominic Team, Berrettini still in there, Tsitsipas, uh, much better if you if you look at his second serve. Uh, if you take away the second serve, there are some guys who uh, who fare a little bit better, like Felix. Felix has a great first serve, and then he kind of suffers on the second. Uh, that would be true for Chapo as well, his his Canadian brother. From Reese O'Neill, couple more here before the the live chat. Uh, why does it feel like the most overwhelming buildup? to the start of a season ever. Maybe it's because of the uncertainty of players who will play Australia and also how fit certain players will be and the relentless COVID situation. Hopefully this changes as the Aussie Open starts. Also sad that team won't play. I don't know. You know, I don't feel that personally. I will say that. Um, and I can even bring the WTA into this picture. I think both tours are in a pretty exciting place. Um, that's kind of, that's how I feel. I know for the ATP, just doing my top 10 prediction, you know, I realized what a wealth of young talent currently exists at the top. Um, and I think that's very, very exciting. You don't have a lot of gatekeepers in there. Obviously, there was an era of tennis not too long ago where you had these top 10 players. Top 10 players like, again, no disrespect, Grigor Dimitrov, Kena Shikori, Milos Raonic, Joe Wilfred Sanga, Tomas Burdic, David Ferrer. Uh, and you just... The thing that's that wasn't great about that era is they were narratively stuck for a very long time. You kind of knew what they were, and there wasn't a lot of suspense there. They were not going to beat the big four, um, in big tournaments. And look, that was a golden era of men's tennis because of the big four and their individual rivalries. But right now, I think there's a lot more interest in what is going to happen in the grand landscape of, uh, of men's tennis. I will add this about the COVID situation, though. That This is going to be a problem for the first time. Just objectively, it will. And we need to we need to brace ourselves for that. If you look at what's happening, really, you know, you you could look at worldwide numbers of just you know Omicron and how many positive cases there there are at the moment. But uh, sports is often other sports are often a good marker of where we are in our society. And the NHL has had issues, huge issues. And by the way. You know, these are leagues widely vaccinated, but Omicron just doesn't seem to care. Um, NBA has had big issues. NFL has had big issues. Tennis is going to have issues. That's just, you know. And by the way, we've been lucky because there has not been. And it is. We are about to hit 2022. There has not been a single tennis tournament, mid-tournament, a draw, that has really been compromised by COVID-19. That's pretty awesome. I think that's about to end. It was a good run. Unfortunately, I think there's going to be situations where, again, just to kind of get into an imaginative space here, 
big, you know, semifinal canceled. Someone got COVID. Uh, quarterfinals, right? Like there's going to be instances where tournaments are affected. And so far we've dodged that bullet, which has been great. But it just, if you look around, it seems like that's not going to last. And and maybe that is taking some, some, some life and some energy out of uh, looking forward to the season. Uh, I don't know. Aditya, hello, Gil. Happy holidays to you. Thank you. Uh, which American do you think could have a stellar 2022? There are six U.S. players in the top 50, but none in the top 20. Do you think 2022 will be different? Will be a different year, and we will see multiple U.S. players in the top 20. We saw huge improvements in young players such as Fritz, Corda, Opelka, Brooksby, and I hope they continue their upward trajectory. Absolutely, a huge setup 2021 for American tennis. And yeah, I, I do think that we're going to get top 20 players. I could see Fritz in the top 20. I could see Brooksby in the top 20. I could see Opelka in the top 20. Um, I think the players I'm a little bit less sure about, Francis Tiafo, although, and when I say less sure, I don't mean like I'm not high on them or I don't think they have great potential. All I'm saying is like, you know, the three guys I just mentioned, I'm, I would predict them in I would predict that they would be top 20. Uh players who I would have to think hard about, who I would have to, you know, maybe consider, Corda, Tiafo, um those are the main guys. But yeah, uh at a certain point when you have enough contenders, you're going to have some breakthroughs. That's just math. It's going to be a it's going to be the best year probably in a very very long time in American tennis. Uh, Game to Love Tennis Podcast. Love those guys. Ben and JG. Will Rublev improve in 2022? There's so much to improve, and I mean that in in a good way, right? I I say that about players like Felix. I say that about players like Shapovalov. You know, players who do a lot of things really, really well and have a lot of talent, but um, in the physical, mental, and technical department, Rublev actually, I think, is one of those players who checks all three boxes where there's probably more development to go, growth to go. Um, so yeah, I, I do think that he will improve in 2022. Uh, will we see immediate results? I mean, I, I don't know. Again, I had to make tough decisions about the top 10, and I I was going to have to take a young player who should be getting better and going up, and I was going to have to have them go down. That's going to happen to someone. And I don't know who it's going to be. I went with Rublev in my prediction. Um, and, you know, that probably got the most run on social media um, of, of any other pick was people, Rublev fans, angry at me. But I had to pick someone. Rublev is my guy because I do think that he is, uh, his ranking is a little overinflated right now. I think really he's should be more around the eight in the world kind of range. Um, and if he has a little bit of a slip up, um, he could be going the wrong direction, but ultimately I do have faith that he'll improve. KH before us open 2021, you were constantly telling us that Medvedev was ready to win a grand slam and it was his time. You were spot on as he won his maiden slam in New York. Now we're heading into Australian Open 2022. Can you say the same statement for Zverev or he still needs that signature win first? Yeah, here's where I'm at with Zverev. I need him to go into a big match in a major and I need to come away from that performance feeling really good about it. 
And that just hasn't happened yet. You know, now Djokovic, U.S. Open semifinal would be the most kind of recent example. I felt okay about that, sort of. It wasn't a great, it wasn't too well. I saw some people saying that that should have been in my MMA awards for match of the year. Don't agree. Don't agree. I think that was a, an up and down match where, for the most part, there was a maybe a 20 minute window where both were playing their best tennis at the same time. Other than that, it was kind of pendulumy, a little bit scratchy going back and forth. Uh, third set was glorious, if I remember correctly. And that's the this uh, passage of play that I'm referring to, especially end of the third set. I think that four all game, five four game, uh, where Novak broke, unbelievable stuff. But, you know, fifth set, another disappointing fifth set. We've seen that a couple of times. Um, yeah, I, I, I got to see. He doesn't even need to necessarily have to win. I just need to see a performance where it's like Zverev is balling. Zverev is a gamer right now in a big match, best of five sets, and and then I'll be ready. So right now I'm not there. I'm not where I was at for Medvedev, where people were were in the mailbag saying, what does he need to do? What does Medvedev need to do? And I'm like, he's good. He's ready. He's ready. Believe me, he's ready. Zverev, I think his game's ready, but uh, obviously just needs to climb those hurdles mentally. Um, all right. I see some comments. I am now looking towards the live chat. Uh, <laughs> a lot of you guys like that uh, GTL coming in there with the comment. I was on the show recently uh, for, for the year-end review. I've been on the show now uh, um, at the end of the year, now, now two years running. I would like to get them on as well. Uh, the, the diabetes thing, I don't know much about that. I just, I'm not, I really don't. I can't, I can't say if that affects his energy levels because I don't know anything about uh, type 1 diabetes. I know, uh, yeah, sorry. Middle American generation, McDonald, Girone, and Kudla. I love Mackey. Um, you know, if he, but, but he's a player who's a, He's capped. You know, you see a clear ceiling with Mackey with his serve, which is an average serve. And the fact that he's not, um, he's just a little bit underpowered. So he has to kind of rely on taking the ball early. I love watching him and I love his game. And uh, I'm not saying he can't rise a lot from where he is right now. Uh, Well-deserved comeback player of the year. Um, really beautiful ball striker, smooth and pure game, but you definitely, you know, he is definitely one of those guys where it's like, he's going to hit a, po- a, a point where it's going to be hard for him to break. Um, and I think your is similar. Your is very similar to Mackey that way. Uh, Dennis Kudla, I think he's, is, is he really comparable in age to your and McDonald? I thought Kudla was a little bit older, great backhand, great grass court player, great fast court player. A little bit of a, a little bit of a specialist in that respect, you know. And people never really accuse uh, fast court specialists of being specialists. It's only the clay quarters that get uh, slapped with that label. Who is the hardest player for you to understand within the top twenty, and why is the answer Shapo? 
Chapeau, in a way, is hard for me to understand, but in another way, is very easy to understand. Because, like, when he's playing well, and when he's playing not well, it's pretty obvious some of the common denominators. Patience, uh, margin, footwork. Um, now, the one thing that is super hard to understand is just the mentality. Uh, and again, this is the drum that I've been beating is Chapo was so content with making the Wimbledon semifinal that he just, his competitiveness just dropped off and his focus and his motivation. And, uh, that's just bizarre to me. I did not see that coming. I, I just super strange. So that is hard to understand. Will Nole start winning rallies again over 10 shots against the best? Um, he probably just needs to pick his spots. You know, I think the match that I just referenced a couple minutes ago against Verb in the U.S. Open semifinal, that's a good example where uh, of when Djokovic needed to dig in and win some long rallies. He was able to do it. It's just about doing it for, you know, four hours. Those days are over. But he has other skills that uh, he's not going to need to do that. It's just about picking his spots there. Yeah. ATP Cup prediction. I would go for Germany. Um, let's see. So Germany has Zverev, Struff, uh, Yannick Hoffman, and a good uh, doubles team in Kevin Kravitz and Tim Puetz. Yeah, I'm looking to my right. I have a roster right here, guys. Um, I would not go with Germany. I would go with Italy. I would go with Italy. They have Berrettini in center. They're the only team with two top 10 players. Um, there is Lorenzo Sanigo, top 30 player to, uh, as, as kind of their third singles guy who they, who they may or may not need, um, might be a good doubles player also. Uh, Bellelli though is their doubles specialist. It's a nice doubles specialist. Uh, but I, I kind of like the, the makeup of Italy, uh, Canada. Mm, no. I don't love. I'm, I'm not loving Canada, but they should do better than they did uh, last year. They went 0 and 2 last year. Uh, one thing is Group A and Group D are the two teams in the top half, and it's wide open. I mean, you have Serbia and Spain without Nadal and Djokovic, and they were going to be the favorites, obviously. But without Nadal and Djokovic, I mean, they're good teams, but they're not awesome teams. And then you have Norway, Chile, Poland, Greece, Georgia, and Argentina. I mean, none of these teams are are stacked. And one of those teams are going to make the final. The bottom half, Group B and Group C, have most of the good teams here. Um, interestingly enough, um, so it's not a very, it's a very lopsided, uh, situation. Interestingly, do you think ATP should collaborate with Netflix? Um, like F1 did. I'm a huge fan of drive to survive. I enjoyed that series a lot. Um, who is calling me? 11.03. Hold on, guys. Call from the doctor, I guess, to confirm my appointment, but that's not happening for another hour and a half. So um, it, I'm going to give a 10-minute warning, though. 
Uh, do you think ATP should collaborate with Netflix for a doc? Yeah, I'm a huge fan of Drive to Survive. I enjoyed the series immensely. And I would love tennis to be able to pull something like that together or just take the principles from it. Uh, now, that takes a lot of investment. Uh, there would be a lot of thinking that would have to be done. Maybe I'll uh, kind of expand my thinking on this another time because I'm not going to have time to thoroughly really talk about this uh, right now. And I'd, I'd like to outline this. Um, let me do more thinking about this. But in general, what F1 did was pull back the curtains, go full access, go from being a very private kind of behind closed door sport to be a wide out in the open sport. And I think what the tours need to do is realize access is what fans demand and what they like now. And if in any way they can improve that access, they should, um, period. Uh, and that would be a good investment for them. The stories of these players should be told and, and the lifestyle. Like, you know, they're going from place to place to place to place. Um, the ups and downs of a tennis season. Yeah, uh, if you condense the tennis season like Drive to Survive does for the F1 season, I think you could have a really compelling product. But you have to change the culture. You need buy-in. All right. Jeff B. mentioning that Medvedev was cramping at the end of that match in the U.S. Open. Yeah, one weird thing about Medvedev, I will say, I still have questions about his ability to play long best of five matches. He just really hasn't had to, like at all. He wins in straights. He loses in straights. I mean, it's like I, I, I've had these concerns for a very long time, and he just doesn't play long matches. So that's that. It's very interesting. That's something to keep an eye on. Um, someone is asking, you worked for ATP radio. Will we see you on TV as well anytime soon? Well, technically, and I know I was on ATP radio, but technically I was working for, uh, the U S open. So I haven't ATP radio, by the way, um, is no longer there. They've shut down. Unfortunately, that's a big loss. I hope that someone comes in, in their place and, uh, fills that void to give tennis fans an audio product, but ATP radio is shut down. Um, as far as TV, I, I work for, for tennis channel. Um, I, you know, I'm not, I can, I can do other things as well, but right now that's, that's how to watch me. If you're out of the United States. Yeah. Uh, now us open radio will still be around, so that's not going anywhere. So us open time, you can listen to me that way. Prime Video has a couple of tennis docs. I know the Murray one. I don't know. Um, I don't know other than that. Uh, no problem. You can make make friends on the live and in, in the chat. I'm going to answer two more here. Two more. Do you give healthy team or Tsitsipas a higher chance to win RG this year? A healthy team team. Um, obviously, I'm assuming mentally healthy as well as physically healthy. Um, and, and that... That goes uh, both ways. But yeah, team. You know, team... Team... Um, a little bit more developed around the edges. 
a little bit more. But it's close. I mean, I, I certainly, it's a thinker. It's not an easy question. Credit to Tsitsipas there. Yeah, uh, Loki points out that Medvedev played that five-setter against Nadal in the U.S. Open final, and he almost pulled it off. It's true. Yep, yep. And and he looked pretty good there. Um, that was a long time ago. Very long time ago. I'd, I'd love to see it again, is all I'm saying. Um, yeah, and, and a five set a five set win over Chilich, I mean, that's not gonna be a very physical match. Medvedev Chilich on grass, right? Um Gil, uh I'm a huge Rafa fan. I think in the last two years Rafa is only winning matches dominating, and he almost always loses tight long matches. Have you thought about this? I don't know, one of his signature wins of last year was against Tsitsipas, um in Barcelona. Now, granted, I know that's a 500 final, but I mean, that's a tight one that, that he got the better of. Has Nadal been a model of clutchness in the last two years though? No, absolutely not. No, you're, you're right to point that out. Uh, there have been weird, you know, choky moments. Um, there have been a lot of shots that Rafa would have to, would, would like to have back. You know, in the third set against Djokovic at Roland Garros, there's that forehand volley in the tiebreak. It's a moment that he would like to have back. Uh, Tsitsipas in Australia, that, that third set tiebreak, he should not have lost that tiebreak. So, uh, yeah, last year was definitely, there were some some uncharacteristically bad moments for Rafa. There's no doubt about that. And uh, I think he just needs to, I think he's still working on trusting his new, more offensive game. I really do. All right, uh, one more. Yeah, my, my thing with, with Medvedev is he loses in straights a lot, right? Um, and, and I'll end on this. You know, Djokovic in Australia won every, or Australian Open, let's say Australian Open this year, won every match in straights, right? And then lost in straights. Uh, and then Roland Garros won every match in three or four and then lost in straights. And then Wimbledon played the five-setter against Chilich, but then he played over two days with Hercotch and lost. So that doesn't really count. And then U.S. Open dropped one set the whole match to to Botic van de Zanschulp. So I'm just not seeing a lot of examples of Medvedev going five. And he does play... Again, a very physically taxing style that is going to require a lot of suffering, a lot of endurance, and I would like to see that kind of pushed. But sometimes I think um, we just we just never get to see that. So that's kind of kind of my thing. Um, again, and I'm not saying that he couldn't play five sets. You know, I'm not saying that it's a definite you know X mark for him. I'm just saying. It's still a question mark for me. You know, he hasn't shown to me that he can play that. that. And look, I think that his patience can whittle. You know, I just don't know that he can play his best brand of tennis in a four or five hour match. Just haven't seen that yet. And I'll wait.
Um, now again, that that U.S. Open final against Nadal is uh, the closest example to it, but it's been a it's been a long time. Let's monitor that. But again, all of these uh, recent slam runs, uh, Medvedev steamrolls, and then a couple of instances Medvedev gets steamrolled. And uh, yeah, there is th- that Krajinovic match. I know, I know. Oh yeah, you're right. Yep. And then Gilles Servara left, and then he got it together. Um, that was an interesting match. Yes. So good point. Good point. Good point. All right. This has been fun. Uh, appreciate everyone who tuned in. Um, looking forward to getting the ATP cup going and then a couple of two fifties as well. Rafa Nadal, uh, will return in one of these two fifties in Melbourne. I think, uh, you know, Tsitsipas, uh, rude, Hercotch, Schwartzman, Nori, FAA, Umber, Medvedev, Dimador, Berrettini, um, Fritz, Zverev, all in action. I mean, there's a good tennis week next week, and um, I probably won't have content during the week, but I will have Monday match analysis. So again, thank you for everyone for tuning in. Hope you enjoyed. Don't forget to subscribe. I'll see you next time. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.